0: Well, do use the bulletin and the printout of the passage, or turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Back in 1992, in their song, Everyone Hurts, the highly successful rock band, R.E.M., uh, tackled the issue of suicide, particularly among young men. It was an anthem for the period, and the themes that it raised, I'm afraid, are still pertinent in our society, still. Still. Highlighting loneliness as the thing that drives people to the edge of despair, they sang, when you're all alone in this life, when your days and nights are long, hold on, don't let yourself go. Others, of course, are less sympathetic, attributing the mounting suicide rates simply to young people's inability to socialize. But irrespective of how sympathetic or otherwise people are to the problems facing young people in Western society, everyone recognizes that suicide rates will never reduce without a greater sense of community. Deep down in the human psyche, men and women, young and old, are searching for a sense of belonging, of togetherness, and identity. We have a word, we have a Bible word that actually sums up each of those words. The Greek word koinonia is the basic word, it comes from a basic word koinos, which means common. Koinonoi, fellowshippers or fellowship, fellowshippers, are those who hold something in common, something very real, something significant, something important. Other uses of the word koinonia and koinonoi and koinos are, for example, association, people who associate together, giving and receiving, sharing things together, companionship, partnering, and even having a conversation or making a contribution. All of those things can are English translations or uses of that Greek word. Now, we've been looking at this little section of Acts and One of the things we've noticed in this little section is an emphasis on togetherness and one-anotherness. And while the focus is not a natural one, and that's important to say right at the beginning, the kind of one-anotherness and togetherness we find here is not a one-anotherness and togetherness based on age group or gender or interests or education or race held in common. The kind of togetherness that this passage is talking about is first of all, of course, a togetherness among those who share in the saving grace of the three members of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Made alive by the word and will of the Father, redeemed by the blood of the Son, indwelt by the presence of the same Holy Spirit, we come to share what the New Testament calls, using the same word, koinos, a common salvation. And along with a common salvation, we have a common inheritance. We look forward to participating, same word, in the glory, in the sheer splendor of God. Now to share these God things in common, we also share them with one another. In other words, our vertical link with God connects me horizontally to my brothers and sisters. And as the vertical link to God is unbreakable and undeniable, so is my connection to those who are part of the body of Christ. The Apostle John puts it like this. In 1 John, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There's the vertical relationship, our fellowship. Together we share this, a relationship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and we have fellowship, koinonia, we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with the Father and the Son, and we have fellowship with one another, and it's our fellowship we share. We share this relationship together in the bundle of life that is the Christian church. Jim Packer, in one of his books, writes this, We should not, therefore, think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercises of private devotion. We should recognize rather that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity, for God has made us in such a way that our fellowship with himself is fed by our fellowship with fellow Christians. Paul One of John's arguments in his little letter, First John, is this. You don't have fellowship with the Father if you're out of fellowship with your brother or your sister. So it's absolutely crucial that we see the connection between this vertical and this horizontal. And and we see this, I think, illustrated in this passage. Verse 42 and the beginning of 43, I think, stand alone. They stand alone as a kind of description of the internal life of the church, as the people Of God, And then from verse 44 to the end, we're looking more at the external life of the church, what people saw, the kind of things that people looking on could observe. But if you put it all together, and and I'm not going to repeat what I said before, but if you put it all together, you can see that the whole emphasis of the section beginning in verse 42 is about what these people did together, both towards God and towards one another. Well, they worshiped together. That's, I think, what verse 42 is all about. Because Jesus had gone to the Father, because he had poured out what they saw and heard that first Pentecost Sunday, these disciples were enabled to do greater works than Jesus did. They saw over 3,000 people. Verse 41, turn to the Lord and call on the Lord's name. It was an astounding demonstration of power from heaven. This mighty miracle was nothing like the the Lord Jesus had done in his lifetime. He had promised them that they would do greater things than he had done. And here it was, this mighty miracle of the new birth. And having been born again, born again into a relationship, they devoted themselves together to do a number of things which stand alone in the passage. They stand alone as having permanent validity. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. I think the definite article emphasizes that these were objective things. They had to do with their spiritual relationship with God. This was the God direction. This was their worship. But not only that, this had an effect upon them. Verse 43 tells, them, tells us, Everyone was filled with awe and fear was upon every soul. There was among the church, I take this to be the church, there was among the church this enduring consciousness that God was at work in their midst, that the last days promised by the prophets had arrived, and that they were themselves witnesses of the final drama of the ages. We know that because the book in chapter one has told us that's what the story is about. It's about what Jesus Continued to do and to teach. So when they heard the apostles teaching, they knew this was Jesus teaching. And when they saw the apostles, verse 43, performing wonders and signs which no one else but Jesus had ever done or would ever do, they realized these apostles had been with Jesus. There was a sense of awe that here was Jesus still at work. He may be invisible, but through the work of the apostles and through the teaching of the apostles, The Lord Jesus was very much alive and well and among his people, every bit as much as he had been in his humanity, and even more wonderfully so in terms of the powerful effect that was happening in the lives of people. Oh, and wonder, fear, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, fear, fear captivated people. Worship led to fear and awe. The fear of the Lord. Fear came upon every soul, a joyful, trembling sense of awe that you don't trifle with the God who does these kinds of signs and wonders. You don't trifle with the kind of God who is able to communicate to you in your own dialect through people who haven't learned your language, the wonderful works of God. It was awe and fear that this God was a stark, fearsome, stunning, awesome, present reality in their lives. That was then. We need to remind ourselves that there's a sense of which what we're hearing is a report of a particular moment in history, in salvation history, in which the work of Jesus is being completed by the apostles. And so therefore, we don't come to this necessarily to think, this is what we should see today. And the people who do say that, I have to say, are minimizing what happened then. God is doing things today, and occasionally he heals, and occasionally he does remarkable things, but we need to put them in a different category in terms of their quality and kind in relation to what we see happening here. These were stunning things. These were marks the prophets had said would Go along with the end of history, as we know it. And we know that from chapter 2, that's exactly how they understood it. This was the day of the Lord. These were indicators. These wonders and signs were indicators that this was the day of the Lord and that these things were coming to an end. So when Luke writes of fear, that's the appropriate response to the revelation of God's presence and power manifested in Luke's writing, if you go through Luke's gospel, manifested through angels, when people were filled with fear, through the miracles of Jesus, or through the signs and miracles of the apostles. Now I know that we find the very language of fear out of step with our culture and with our times. If there is a God, our culture, both inside and outside of the church, requires that he be a genial chappy, the kind of God who is there when you want him. The kind of God who wants you to have your best life now, the kind of God who is only interested in massaging your ego when you come to church, telling you the things you want to hear and never disturbing the equilibrium of your life. But the New Testament and Luke in his writings Luke and Acts uses this expression, the fear of the Lord, a lot to describe the whole life of faith and piety. When he uses the word fear, he doesn't mean abject terror. Although we must be careful, I think that there may be some sensitive souls listening to me today. And whenever you hear that phrase, the fear of the Lord, that's where your mind automatically goes, and you become terrified and destabilized spiritually when you hear the language. But let me let me reassure you that the fear of the Lord is rooted in the assurance of the holiness, but also the constancy. And the justice of God. Those who really fear the Lord rejoice in the grace of God, that we're in a relationship with God. And this kind of fear is not in contradiction to the joy we have in the salvation that God has given us in Christ. We can say about the God we worship, what is said of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, He, God, is good, but he is not safe. So here they are worshipping together. But now we turn out of the church. That's what they did when they were together in church, if you will, in their worship. But now we move outwards. What was it that the public saw? And that's really what we find from verse 44. And here's our next point. They were worshipping together. Secondly, they met together. All who believed were together. Now that word together is one one of the great gathering words in the Bible. We find it in Acts chapter 1. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers and the others. They were doing this. On chapter 2, on the beginning of the day of Pentecost, chapter 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. In other words, what people saw when they looked at the church in its infancy, if we can use that expression because the church had been around since the time of Abraham at least, what they saw when they saw the church at Pentecost was people who were saved one by one. Yes, they had believed individually. Each one of them was justified by faith in the Lord Jesus one by one. But what they saw was a community. They saw people who were together. They met together because they were together. The Father's call and the Spirit's power rescues rebels from wrath for the purpose of incorporating them into the redeemed community, into the assembly of the Lord. Now they met together, notice, not in a commune, In other words, they didn't do what in the 60s and 70s. There were kind of various groups of Christians who thought they would try this out. They would try living together in the same house, couples and families and so on. I can't imagine anything worse. I mean, bless you, I love you, but really, uh, I like my space. And I'm sure you like your space too. They didn't meet in a commune. But what we're told is they met as often as they could. They met from day to day, whenever they could. This is community language. Here was a new covenant people of God bound together in a bundle of life. And they joined the community of people who'd been drawn, who from the dawn of time had called upon the name of the Lord. They'd called on the name of the Lord, just as we read about them in Genesis 4, calling on the name of the Lord. And they met in different locations. There were large-scale meetings. They met in the temple in the temple area. Later on, we we're told it was Solomon's colonnade, an ideal place to meet. It was shaded from the sun, and uh, it was an area big enough to contain the numbers that were crowding in to the kingdom of God. And I think that there they probably did the things that are outlined in verse 42. It would be there that they listened to the apostles' teaching, and enjoyed the fellowship of the gospel, and broke bread perhaps in communion and offered the daily prayers, the temple prayers. And they met in the temple because they were the Israel of God. The temple was the focal point of Israel's public worship. The glory of God had been revealed in the temple. That was the promise the prophets had made and had been fulfilled. Believing Jews had come to see the salvation of God through their Messiah, Jesus. And so they met there. Soon, of course, they would stop meeting there. And the synagogue, rather than the temple, would become the model for Christian worship. At least until the Middle Ages, when the temple was re-adopted as the, as the focal point, as the idea for Christian worship. And you introduced all these new things, rites and ceremonies and priesthood and all the rest of it. All the paraphernalia of the medieval medieval church. So there were large-scale meetings. And they were small-scale meetings. We'll come back to this in a moment. But they also met in their homes. And what they did there we'll see in a moment. The thing is that what people saw was these Christians like to be together. They meet together. And as they looked on at these people who were meeting together, they did not see one demographic. They saw a whole mixture of people from all kinds of places, all kinds of colors, all kinds of backgrounds, All kinds of educational life experience and all the rest of it. They met together. Second, thirdly, they shared together. We're told they had all things in common. And then that's filled out for us. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any as had need. Now I want you to notice some things about this text here. I have to say this because... Some people will worry, and and I just want to clear away those worries before I put the knife in. Uh, I, I want you to notice, not that I would do that to you, but I want you to notice that it was their properties and their possessions that they were selling and using in this way. And they did this freely, and they were sharing them with their brothers and sisters. Now, I think we're right to point that out in these days, because... It's probably important, especially in light of the 20th century experience, to say that this behavior was not a kind of incipient communism. We say that because it was obviously occasional and spontaneous. It was done freely, not by coercion. And for all those who try and impose this on their fellow believers, I would also want to say it was done not out of guilt, but out of joy. Not because they were having their arms twisted up their back or being guilted into doing it. They did this spontaneously. They did it freely and they did it joyfully. So let me put it like this. We we rightly emphasize that private property and possessions are a human right. Right? Because they are a divine right given to humans. That's why the 10th commandment says you shouldn't steal. It's only stealing if it's theirs you're taking. It's not stealing if every, what they've got is everybody's. When it says you shall not steal, it's saying we're not to take someone else's property or possessions because it's theirs and not ours. Later on in the the Bible, we read about people who retained their own homes and opened their doors for table fellowship among the believers. We read about people later in the New Testament who are rich in this present age, who were members of the church, and they're urged to use their financial resources carefully and to give generously to the work of God. So what we find here then is this spontaneous response to Jesus' teaching, where he often spoke about meeting one another's needs. And I suppose it was even more necessary with the progressive isolation that many of these new converts were feeling. Their, their families would have turned them out, rejected them because they'd accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They'd nowhere to go, no one to support them. The, the normal, the normal uh, cushion against that kind of thing would have be been taken away because of their conversion to Christ. Great reformer Martin Butzer calls this the church's alms. The, the open-hearted liberality by which affluent Christians contributed their financial resources to relieve the poor. And it didn't just happen then. We know from later in in the New Testament that there were other moments when believers found the generosity within themselves to overcome vast geographical and ethnic distances in order to share what they had with those who were in need. Now, I've been emphasizing, haven't I, that that was then. And this was a unique moment, and it was a unique moment in the history of the church. But but there are other bits in the Bible, aren't there? There are other bits in the Bible that are more uncomfortable because the Bible says that one of our responses to the good news of the gospel, which is God's generosity to us, one of our responses is our generosity towards others. And whether that generosity is expressed in hospitality, that is opening our homes and welcoming people in our homes, or in liberality, that is giving where we can to needs as they arise, we have to press that into our own hearts. Why? Because Jesus taught us that money can be a God. And you can't serve God and money. Your possessions are yours, but all of us have to ask ourselves whether we are possessed by our possessions and examine our hearts. The last thing I want to do is impose a guilt trip on God's people, but the simple fact is that we find it hard sometimes to be generous. Those of us who have been given so much by God find generosity These people shared together. The next thing is they socialized together. I think that's the only word I can find to describe what they were doing. They ate together in their homes. Now we we did notice last time in verse 42 a reference to the breaking of the bread. The definite article is used twice in that phrase, the breaking of the bread. We saw its connection back into Luke, with the Lord's Supper, and it does refer to the Lord's Supper, though it may refer to more than that. But when we come to the second use of that expression, here in verse 46, it is limited. Do you notice this? It's now clarified because it's amplified. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. In other words... The second reference is to something much more general. And we know that because it's amplified for us, we're told. In other words, when we think about Christians meeting together, we think meetings. When these early Christians thought meeting together, they thought meals. Don't you want to be with them? (laughs) I, I I certainly do. I don't know if you're one of those people, and I have met people like that, not here. It's far too mature a congregation for this to happen. But I don't know if there is somebody here who's wandered in from somewhere else, obviously, who, who thinks that having social times with coffee after the service or meals together is a rather pedantic and unnecessary affair. I want to say to you that you're out of step with your Lord and with the church. In its broadest sense, food matters. Meals matter. Someone has written this, few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming our friend. The word companion comes from the Latin come and panis together or with bread. A companion is someone will you eat with. Now here's a little pop quiz. It comes from the writings of Luke's Gospel and Luke's Acts, so it's from the Bible, but it's a little pop quiz. I wonder if you could complete the sentence, the Son of Man came. Now you will know because you're an educated congregation in the Word of God, the the phrase the Son of Man comes from Daniel 7 and describes that heavenly figure that comes before God to receive authority over the nations. Daniel writes, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus loved that expression, the Son of Man, because he was saying to us that's me I'm the Lord from heaven I'm the one to whom all the worship of all the nations will one day come so how did the Son of Man come the New Testament has three ways of answering the question mark answers it like this the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many look has another answer. In chapter 19, verse 10 of Luke's gospel, the Son of Man came to seek the lost. But he has a second, Luke has a second, a third in our list, a third answer to the question, the Son of Man came for what? In Luke chapter 7, verse 44, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, isn't that amazing? The first two are statements of purpose. They tell us why he came. He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. That's his purpose. That's why he came. What Luke is doing in Luke 7 is he's telling us the method by which he did that in his public ministry. He came eating and drinking. And he's not talking here about subsist- subsistence eating and drinking, the kind of nibbles you get. And one of these dinner party things where, where you know, they're miniatures. You maybe don't get them in America. I wouldn't imagine you would actually. Miniature sized You get them in England a lot. These miniaturized little hors d'oeuvres you get before. You need about 20 of them before you have a mouthful of the things. Well, that's not the kind of thing that, that Luke has in mind here. Let me read you the whole quotation Luke 7.35, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see what they're saying? He eats too much. He drinks too much. He mixes with the wrong kind of people. That's what they're saying about the Lord Jesus. A glutton is someone who eats too much. A drunkard is someone who drinks too much what they're saying is as they looked at Jesus, he was seriously into eating and drinking. Obviously he was never drunk, nor was he a glutton, but obviously from people looking on, that's what they observed. Earlier in Luke's gospel, in chapter 5, the Pharisees and their scribes complained to him. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. (laughs) That was their complaint. Jesus Spent a long time eating and drinking with people. That was his gospel strategy. Spent on the long term with people over food. So in Luke, uh, so here, here's here's what I take to be happening here. In verse 42, we're told these new believers listened to what the apostles were saying. What would they be asking the apostles to tell them? Tell us a little more about Jesus. What was he like? What did he do? Luke in his gospel puts this in, in in, in Acts puts this in. He's already given us his gospel. He's told us in Luke 5 that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners in the home of Levi. In in Luke 7, he's anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, he he feeds 5,000 people with leftovers. In, In chapter 10, he eats in the home of Martha and Mary. In chapter 11... He condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. In chapter 14, he's at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than just their friends. In chapter 19, Jesus invites himself round to to Zacchaeus's house for dinner. Uh, In chapter 22, we have the Last Supper. In chapter 24, after the resurrection, the Lord Jesus has a meal with two disciples in Emmaus. And then later on, at a kind of barbecue, he eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. One scholar has put it like this: In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. <laughs> Isn't that a remarkable thing? And not only is he doing that, what what, what is this Acts about? What Jesus did, yeah, but also what he taught, what did he teach? Well, he's talking about food. There's a great banquet, chapter 14, a party thrown for the prodigal who's returning in chapter 15. Or he talks about the people coming from north, south, east, west, and sitting down at the table in the kingdom of God. And you find other references to food everywhere scattered around his teaching. And it seems as if his pleasure in the excess of food, if you will, is in proportion to the excess of His grace, the grace and abundance that He gives to His people. For Jesus' food is stuff. It's not a religious idea or a religious symbol or an icon. It's something you put in your mouth and you chomp on. It represents social life, friendship, community, relationship, welcome, accessibility. That's why when we read about the, ex- the life of these early Christians, you notice what Luke puts in there. He doesn't put that in out of the blue. He doesn't put it in kind of from thin air. It's against the background of Jesus' practice and the apostles' teaching. He tells you the early Christians enjoyed eating with one another. Now you say, that's not a very spiritual thing to talk about in church. But it's in the Bible. And I'll tell you something else. Not only did they eat, but they did did it with glad and generous hearts. They were grateful for the daily provision, yeah, and they expressed their gratitude to God by praising Him and thanking Him regularly. And we know that following the period that we have recorded in the Bible, we know that the early Christians did that. They had meals regularly. And at those meals, non-Christians would often be present, and non-Christians would come to faith. Enjoying the fellowship and the friendship and the companionship of Christians. What I want to say to you is meals and dinner parties are still the most effective means of convincing a world that you are a normal person <laughs> and that you still love the Lord Jesus. They are still the best place for us to invite people who would never come to church, never come to an evangelistic lecture, talk, or sermon, or whatever. There's still a vital way of us finding friendship with each other, but also getting the gospel out. So if you're coming to 10th and you haven't really linked up with people yet, why don't you take the initiative and ask somebody near you tonight to come to your place for a meal? doesn't have to be, you know, you you haven't had to be to the restaurant school or anything like that. They're very forgiving Christians. But invite them to your home. These people socialize together. The last thing we're told is that they grew together. And these two things stand out at the end of the passage here. They grew together. And apparently, this is the point that I want to make. The growth of the church is linked to what people observed In the Christians, they observed these people who wanted to be together, meet together. They observed them eating together and opening their homes and being generous towards one another and caring for one another and meeting each other's needs. See how these Christians love one another. They saw these things. And do you notice in verse 47 it says that they had favor with all the people. Their very fellowship was a pre-evangelistic thing. It got people's interest. People saw that and they said, you people are probably the last people in the world I would ever put together. And yet together, together you have something that's real. What is, what, what is it you have that you share together that's real? The answer is we share something far better than a common education or a common racial background. We share Christ. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. That's what we want to see, isn't it? We want to see the Lord adding to his church. And you'll notice who grows the church. It's the Lord. The Lord who adds to the church is Jesus, whom the Father has made both Lord and Christ. And who is added to the church? Well, it's those who are being saved. You notice there's no attempt, even in this informal context of talking about food and meeting and all the rest of it, no, no attempt to soft-pedal the message. Here, this Lord is the Lord Christ. And the people who are being added are people who are being saved. In other words, they were in danger of wrath and judgment. But now they're being saved because they're believing in the Lord Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Messiah, Jesus, will be saved. Earlier on, verse 40, Peter's been saying to these people, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. They were saved because they turned to the Lord Jesus. They called upon his name. And they were drawn into the fellowship, into the communion of saints, into the new covenant assembly of God's people. I started talking about the dysfunctional loneliness of so many in our society today. And I know that it's possible to come into this church and sit there and have no one speak to you and for you to feel isolated. I know that can happen. The bigger crowd, that's always going to happen. But I also know this, that once you connect with people in this church, once you get into a small group in this church, once you start getting to know people in this church, you will find these people will love you. I know that because I'm a stranger here. And I know that's what's happening to my wife and I. And I know that will happen to you too. And I want to urge you tonight, if you're not a Christian, I want you to urge you tonight to come and to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And if that's going a step too far, then I, I, I say this to you. Just hang out with us. Some of these people cook very well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy of fellowship with the people of God. Thank you that you are calling people out of the world, calling them into the new covenant assembly of your people, calling them to live together in the community that is the body of Christ. We thank you for this church here. Thank you, Lord, for the relationships companionship, friendship that can be found here, and honesty with one another. We want other people to share that friendship with us. We want others, Lord, to enjoy what we have. We want, Lord, what we have to become better. We want to grow and, and to see this joyful fellowship that we have shared with many, many others as they come to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit of God, will you do that for the greater glory of the Father's name? And for the honor of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.